Hello and welcome to The Forecast, New Model Advisors podcast about what's going on in the world and how it invests your investment portfolio. Joining me today is Alex Monk, manager of the Schroeder Global Energy Transition Fund. We're going to be talking about, of all things, the weather. Alex, it's great to have you with us. As I speak to you right now, it's snowing quite heavily outside my window, a bit more than it has in previous years. I wondered, is this a sign of climate change in the UK? And more widely, what can we expect from weather change in the next, both the near future and the long-term future? Hi, Charles. Thanks very much uh, for having me on. So I think this is a really interesting question. And I think what's super important and useful here is to distinguish between the weather, which is what we experience on a day-to-day basis, uh, and the climate, which is obviously what we hear a lot about in the news um, and is obviously being influenced by us in terms of, of, of climate change and global warming. Now, the climate is very much the average weather that we experience over time and space. And since industrialization, the average climate of the, the, the planet has increased one degree. Uh, and in the past five years, between 2015 and 2019, we've experienced the five warmest years on record. Now, what that means from a weather perspective is slightly different, because as I say, the weather is what we experience on a day-to-day basis. And taking that overall warming of the climate and mapping it against, the, as you say, snowy conditions that we are seeing in the UK today is something that's really important to understand. Now, Generally speaking, when the climate starts to warm up as it has been and the atmosphere gets warmer, you start to see more extreme weather events. Now, the reason for this, broadly speaking, is that a warmer atmosphere can collect more moisture and it can retain more moisture and it can distribute more moisture. So you end up with more flooding events and equally on the other side, more droughts in other parts of the world. And again, that's because there's more evaporation uh, in a warmer climate. Similarly, with a warmer atmosphere, seas expand and water expands. So you end up with higher storm surges and more flooding from that perspective. And finally, as we start to melt polar ice, the fresh water discharge from that ice starts to disrupt ocean currents and atmospheric currents. So again, you start to see real disruption to weather patterns around the world and increased extreme weather. And ultimately, it's that extreme weather which has the most impact on society and obviously investments. It's really interesting that you sort of draw this distinction then between climate and weather and separating that out. I think, would you say, we've seen a fair bit of flooding, for example, in the UK in recent years. Is that kind of what you're talking about here when you're saying the weather will be different from the climate in terms of heating up and what you would normally expect from that? Exactly. So when we think about individual weather events, it's very difficult to ever say that humans or global warming cause that specific weather event. But there's a new uh, sort of field of, of academic research called extreme event attribution, which looks to determine whether humanity through global warming and, and increased carbon dioxide emissions has at least increased the likelihood or severity of particular weather events. Um, and certainly the increased floods that we've started to see um, in the UK, the increased hurricanes, the increased forest fires that we started to see in Australia have all been thought to have been influenced in terms of their severity or likelihood by humanity's actions in warming the planet. For example, in in 2020, the US had uh, 22 uh, named weather events uh, that cost over a billion dollars in damage um, and 95 billion in total. And globally, there were 44 extreme weather events that cost that much. These are all records. Um, you know, we also saw, obviously, there were record fires um, in, in the US, record fires in Australia. 
And similarly, there have been more and more Atlantic storms, uh, again, all breaking records. So the specific events we see are very much a function of the overall temperature warming up and creating opportunities for extreme weather to be more likely. Um, and that is something that, you know, particularly as climate change potentially continues to worsen going forwards, we should at least expect more of. Um, and again, one of the, the sort of uh, problems with climatic change is that lots of the effects that it have create positive feedback cycles. As we remove more trees, we remove carbon sinks and so further accelerate global warming. As the polar ice caps melt, we remove further ice caps and then again that accelerates global warming. So we should expect to see more and more extreme weather as we keep putting more carbon emissions into the atmosphere. It's really interesting you mentioned Australia there. My, um, I have a few sort of distant relatives who live there and we had a catch up on Zoom at Christmas um, and uh, it was very striking to me that the main thing they were concerned about rather than this pandemic was actually the wildfires and how this, I think this year they've not really had so many. So uh, obviously there's a degree to which how well their government has handled the pandemic cases. But I think it's, it, I think it's really telling that weather is a big concern in parts of the world. And once you've experienced those extremes, you really see kind of the impact of them. Um, but what does all this mean for business? You mentioned this sort of new field. Does that ever come into how you think about businesses or have you come across businesses who are really kind of employing specialists in this? Yeah, so I, I guess when, when I think about the impact of climate change and weather on uh, businesses and investments, I typically break it down into three buckets. So my first bucket is that Climate change continues unabated. We keep, you know, putting emissions into the atmosphere. And so the physical effects and the, you know, the extreme weather that we're starting to experience gets worse and worse. Now, if you're a company with significant physical infrastructure um, and businesses with, with lots of physical assets and you start to see more and more extreme weather that starts to disrupt those assets, the risks to earnings disruption or, or damage costs and, and insurance payments starts to go up. And I guess we saw that sort of most notably with the PG&E case in the US after the fires that started to occur there. So companies with sort of large physical asset bases in areas prone to extreme weather are certainly at risk. And, you know, Could hiring... Could you just explain um, the um, PG&E case there? I, I haven't actually come across that. Yeah, so I mean, again, it was it was not necessarily, um, uh, you know, the same way any uh, extreme event impacts businesses for, for a variety of different reasons. Essentially, PG&E's physical assets were very much caught up in a spate of um, forest fires that, that occurred uh, on the west coast of the United States and started to cause significant damage. Uh, that, again, really started to disrupt their business model um, from an earnings perspective and, and sort of the, the cost that they were going to have to pay to uh, to manage blackouts and, and, and other disruption to the electricity grid. So that's just one example. And, and Schroeder's has done a lot of work in terms of sort of physical risk analysis, trying to identify other companies with key strategic assets in high risk areas that are potentially at risk from disruption, whether it be further forest fires, further hurricanes or flooding or, or, or some other extreme event. So, so that's an energy company that was sort of had physical assets. Yes, uh, a US utility on the on the on the west coast. Um, so yeah, okay. a, a really good example of their company with that large physical infrastructure base that they're totally reliant on being disrupted by extreme weather. So the the second group of of companies that I, I kind of think about with uh, with disruption um, in terms of weather and climate is that you know okay instead of letting 
climate change and global warming continue, the world gets its act together and starts to uh, regulate, either through potentially higher carbon prices. Now, again, from a business disruption perspective, identifying those companies that have uh, a lower carbon footprint here, whether that be in their own business operations or, or in their supply chain, becomes hugely important. And again, Schroders has done a load of work with a tool called Carbon Value at Risk, looking for companies that um, have a lower carbon footprint and are managing their operations with a lower risk of higher carbon prices. If carbon prices start to rise and you're a business that's quite carbon intensive, you know, you're going to have to bear the cost in terms of paying those carbon prices. The final technology group I then think about, which, which for me is, is, is potentially the most interesting, if, if we think about the sort of risks from a physical perspective and carbon pricing, they're both really earnings and profitability headwinds. Things are going to get worse for these companies. But the final group is the, the technologies that are provide uh, the, the companies that are providing the technologies that provide solutions to these problems, whether that be sustainable energy, sustainable food and water. Uh, you know, if you think about a wind turbine, the the emissions over the life cycle of a wind turbine are four grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour versus a thousand grams for a coal plant. So these companies that are providing the solutions offer earnings and cash flow tailwinds and provide earnings and cash flow growth opportunities. And again, that's super interesting. EVs are the same. Sustainable food, if we think about sort of plant-based foods, plant-based burgers often have 90% less emissions than, uh, you know, meat alternatives. And again, often have more sustainable supply chains. So finding those companies that are offering the solutions as much as avoiding those ones that are most at risk is something that I think is really interesting from an investment perspective. And do you think I could quickly come back then to the carbon pricing, if you could maybe explain what you mean by that, but it still seems a little bit of a nebulous idea to me. Do you think you could just explain exactly how it would work? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the, I guess the most established uh, carbon pricing scheme in the world at the moment is probably the EU emissions trading scheme. Mm. So if we think about what carbon really is, carbon emissions are uh, the perfect example of an externality. Um, whereby, you know, the effects to individuals from emitting carbon um, at the moment are negligible, but the effects to overall society of carbon being put into the atmosphere and, and, and the climate warming up are devastating and potentially impact everyone. So the logic behind carbon pricing is that if you can put a price on emissions that companies then have to uh, either pay and, you know, it impact their profitability or find solutions to you know produce less emissions you start to encourage changing practices and start to, to drive change and, and find those technology solutions so the way a carbon price would work and it varies in terms of whether it's a carbon tax or a kind of cap and trade scheme um, is that you would essentially allow society to find the most economically efficient way of reducing emissions and um, by setting a price on an externality that at the moment isn't being priced and isn't being captured as a cost by making it a cost that businesses have to solve. Um, and I think what's super exciting, as well as the pricing uh, mechanism in the EU being revised and tightened up, we're starting to see carbon pricing in China now. The US is starting to explore carbon taxes and carbon pricing. So the more carbon pricing schemes we can have around the world, the more opportunity is that carbon cost to society starts to get priced in and we start to find the solutions based on the, the economic rationale of doing so. And is there any sign of the UK doing anything different with um, obviously now it's no longer part of the EU? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question and, and something that hasn't necessarily been explicitly touched on um, so far. The UK has always had uh, a sort of additional layer of carbon tax over the top. Uh, and obviously, Boris Johnson outlined a sort of uh, fairly uh, ambitious plan in terms of 
accelerating the, the transition in the UK. I think what's important is, you know, a, a carbon tax alone is important, but it's not the only solution. Uh, again, equally providing uh, subsidies for growth in new technologies, whether that be electric vehicles, where, you know, by 2030, the UK is looking to phase out internal combustion engines, providing opportunities for more renewable energy growth. You know, I guess it's thinking about it in terms of carrot and stick. There are, there yeah. are opportunities to sort of punish companies or maybe punish is too, too, too strong a word, but, but make sure companies that are high emitting are at least having to bear the cost of those high emissions now. But equally encouraging those technology providers who are, who are offering the solutions uh, and to, to the climate change problem is something that, that's equally important. And again, from an investment perspective, I think it's in some ways more interesting because you're then looking for companies that can grow their earnings and cash flow rather than really trying to avoid those that might suffer earnings and cash flow headwinds. And so on the solution side, what exactly are you looking for? Because it seems that there's, I mean, as with anything, there's a lot of different reasons to invest in a business along if you're taking um, solutions as the, the guiding principle. But it, are you mostly looking for companies then that are going to not be hit by stuff like carbon pricing and the transition to clean energy? Or are you looking as well at companies that are going to avoid kind of the extreme elements of um, the weather changing and whether that's as you mentioned earlier physical assets um, or whether that's in supply chains being disrupted uh, at all yeah so uh, this is a really good question and i think really the answer is is all of the above um to some extent yeah. uh again what schroders has been brilliant on uh, you know from 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 i guess our perspective as an investment team is providing loads of tools that help us understand as investors the different risks and opportunities for companies, uh, whether it's the physical risk tool that highlights potential physical risk to assets and, and potential insurance costs, whether it's carbon value at risk, um, which looks to determine, you know, the carbon intensity of a, a company's operations, or whether it's, uh, you know, an emerging set of tools that are looking for those companies that are providing the solutions. And I think really what, what you want to try and do is, is find a, depending on the kind of investment strategy that you're specifically looking at, Finding the balance. Now, you know, what we do on the, the, the Schroeder Global Energy Transition team uh, is very much look for companies that are providing those solutions that can experience those earnings and cash flow tailwinds and, and can look to grow their businesses as the amount of investment that needs to go into the energy transition unfolds. Um, I guess if you think about energy, energy comprises sort of anywhere between 40 and 70 percent of all emissions globally. So changing the energy system, the way we produce, distribute and consume power through renewables, through electric vehicles, through smart grids, through residential solar, through energy storage, through green hydrogen, for example. That shift in our energy system needs to happen. There's going to be a huge amount of investment and companies are going to benefit. Similarly, if we think about uh, food and water, you know, uh, the food system and the water system comprises 25 to 30 percent of all emissions globally. So massively changing that and finding those companies that are, again, providing ways that we can change our, our diets and offer more sustainable solutions, again, have the opportunity to really grow their earnings. I think what's important, though, as well, is that, you know, it's not just about necessarily finding the solutions or avoiding the ones that yeah. at the moment you know, are being poorly. It's about engaging with these companies, working out those names that, you know, at the moment maybe, you know, do have risks. But actually, when you speak to management teams, they're really actually being very progressive in terms of driving change. So it's really about looking at all the different risks and opportunities associated with climate and the weather and working out which companies are, are best placed to, to either capitalize or, or, or avoid the risks. You mentioned um, food and water system, particularly from um, kind of a, a carbon 
perspective there. Is there also a perspective where you portfolios need to look at them in in terms of shortages and with you know, particularly if you're suffering from droughts in areas where it's warming up, um, food shortages in areas where flooding takes place? Does that ever come into how you're thinking about these businesses? Exactly. And I think, again, this kind of really gets to the most interesting point about the weather and climate as a disruptive theme in that everything is tied together. Um, I think the best way of sort of illustrating this is that, you know, over the last, uh, if you imagine the world often talks about managing climate increase to to a two degree limit. And the easiest way to think about that is that to to increase temperatures to two degrees, we're going to have to have emitted a trillion tons of carbon. Now, it took us 250 years to do the first half of that trillion, the first 500 billion. At the pace we're going at now, it's going to take us 25 years to do the next 500 billion. Um, Now, every 500 billion of carbon that you emit is basically a degree of temperature warming. So we're already at 1.2 degrees. So the world has already got itself in a place whereby the extreme weather events, the droughts that we're starting to see are going to be, you know, around for a significant period of time. Um, So as much as it is about companies providing the solutions, you're absolutely right in that there is going to be disruption um, and continued disruption, particularly because we're still a long way to go in this transition to the existing food systems that we know, to the existing business structures that we know, to existing supply chains that we know. So as well as providing, you know, looking for companies that are providing those ultimate end goal solutions, thinking about the companies that are also providing those adaptive solutions in terms of, you know, thinking about whether it be food disruption or disruption to supply chains, uh, and those companies that are managing those risks and providing sort of, as I say, adaptive solutions to those risks is really important. And I think on food supply, it's a really excellent example. You know, if we were to think about food waste as a country, it would be the third largest country in terms of emissions globally. Um, The amount of waste we're using is absolutely vast. So finding companies that as well as providing sort of the the headline sustainability solutions in terms of foodstuffs that reduce emissions, identifying those companies that are solving problems like waste, that are solving problems in terms of increasing crop yields as we start to see more drought, finding companies, uh, you know, indoor farming, for example, and vertical farming is something that's really interesting in terms of being able to increase crop yields on much smaller areas to, to ensure reliability supply becomes extra important as well. And again, I think that comes back to thinking about all the different risks that the changing weather and climate creates and working out which companies are providing the solutions and are really best placed to benefit from those risks and opportunities. That's a really interesting point on food waste and something it's, we're all aware that we waste too much food uh, just globally, but to hear it put in those figures is pretty stark that it would be the third largest country in terms of emissions. Um, uh, have you, have you, out of interest, have you come across any companies that are dealing with that kind of issue? Yeah, so I think one of the most exciting things, uh, certainly from, again, what we do on the energy transition side and also in, in other places such as, such as food and water we've been discussing is that the technology solutions currently exist. You know, renewables have now reached a point whereby across two thirds of the world, they are cheaper, the cheapest way of producing power, much cheaper than, than coal and gas, which means that I'm now, you know, if I'm a utility, I'm no longer investing um, because of climate change alone. I'm investing, I'm investing because this makes economic sense. Electric vehicles are not too far behind. We're reaching a point now whereby electric vehicles are cost competitive with internal combustion engines. Energy storage is catching up. 
Green hydrogen is slightly further away from a cost competitive perspective, but again, it's getting there very quickly. And similarly, on the sustainable food and water side, you know, companies that are providing, um, you know, food waste solutions, whether that be waste to energy or other ways of recycling, companies that are doing uh, indoor vertical farming to increase crop yields and using far less water, companies that are providing meat based alternatives or providing more sustainable solutions, all these technologies exist. Um, which is a really good starting point because now all that we need to do is really scale up um, and yeah. start to reduce costs and kind of increase adoption. So it's not like those solutions need to be found out. Humans are absolutely brilliant at coming up with innovative solutions to solve problems. It's, you know, we do a lot of things wrong, uh, humanity, but we are very good at, at, at finding uh, solutions and all these solutions exist. So now hopefully it's just a case of really scaling it up and pushing it on. And often, just to finish, I guess, when we think about the energy transition or, you know, other structural trends that are occurring, we often talk about three key driving forces, which are policy, cost, and consumer demand. Uh, and if you look at any transition that's happened through history, whether it be sort of the growth of oil and the automobiles or, or the use of technology that we all use today, two things have always driven structural shifts in the way we live our lives, which have been cost and consumer demand. If something is cheap enough, and enough people want it, that's when you start to see major change. And certainly with the energy transition, we're at a point whereby this stuff makes economic sense now. Enough people and companies want this to happen. And we have the big policy support that's particularly come from the EU, Joe Biden being elected in the US, and, and obviously in parts of China as well, we started to see major policy pushes here. The same is happening in, in sustainable food and water. Again, the EU has made making uh, the food system and the agricultural system really sustainable a part of its key priority around the Green Deal. So it's all these solutions exist and are happening and the driving forces are now all pointing in the right direction. So again, from a, a kind of investment returns perspective, it's super exciting. And also from a societal perspective, it's super exciting. Well, it's now just a case of sticking to the path and trying to accelerate this transition as fast as we can. I wonder if we could quickly finish perhaps by talking, potentially talking from a little bit of an asset allocation perspective in a portfolio. Obviously, you have you you manage a fund that's focused on clean energy, but perhaps more broadly, how much do, would the average either fund or average portfolio have to account for changes in the weather and this and potentially this transition? And what's the best way of going about that? Yeah, so it, it's a really good question. And as I say, I think the most important thing to realize is that, you know, the weather and climate are going to disrupt everything. Uh, you know, if we let global climate change continue uh, and we start to see more and more extreme weather like we're experiencing uh, today, as I look out the window and, and obviously like we've seen all around the world, every company, whether it be on the direct operations or whether it be on their supply chain, is going to be disrupted in some way. Um, you know, even financial companies through insurance payments or, or banks, they're going to be disrupted. So there is definitely going to be disruption if we don't solve the problem. And equally, if we do solve the problem, there's going to be just as much disruption, whether that be through higher carbon prices, um, you know, existing technologies being phased out and new ones coming in. So I think what's really important, and again, Schroders have been absolutely brilliant in terms of developing tools for investors to help us understand these risks and to help identify those companies that are most exposed to those risks, but also the opportunities on the other side, is identifying those companies that are most exposed to the risks. And if they are exposed, engaging with them and understanding what they're doing to change. Because just because a company is exposed to a risk now doesn't necessarily mean that it will be uh, you know, terminally at risk. They can be doing things to change their business. So that engagement piece is really important. 
And equally on the other side, as I say, finding those companies that are going through these structural changes and are providing those technologies, whether it be the direct technologies or whether it be the enabling technologies. One of the things that, you know, still I think is super interesting is that a third of the capex for an offshore wind farm is spent on the cable that connects that offshore wind farm back to the grid. So companies yeah. are kind of the less obvious winners are also sort of just as exciting. Uh, and equally, uh, sort of a, another stat that, that, that always baffles me is that over the course of a year, an average vehicle uses an average electric vehicle uses as much electricity as a house. So if you can imagine us all driving around in electric vehicles, how much extra electricity we're going to be putting on the grid. Companies that are providing those nuts and bolts and hardware and helping to make the grid more interesting. Again, not the obvious sort of renewable names necessarily, but sort of some of the existing electrical equipment names are super well placed. So I think it's looking at your uh, set of companies. You know, if you, you have a global strategy, thinking about these risks in a more holistic term, if you want something more specific to kind of, you know, capture the, that growth opportunities, uh, looking for something more specific, focused on those solutions providers, where again, you do have that earnings and cash flow tailwind that, that certainly we think is super exciting. And really saying, okay, which companies are the market leaders here that have sustainable business models that can continue to grow their earnings sustainably over time? Um, and which are the ones which are at risk and actually are at risk of really falling behind here because either they're not changing or simply the risks are too great. And then obviously the final piece of the puzzle is, is thinking about valuations um, and making yeah. sure that, you know, you're being disciplined from a valuation perspective um, and, and, you know, balancing that risk reward. And, you know, it's sort of very easy to go out and find a list of brilliant companies that are doing amazing things. But if these are all priced to perfection and above, they're probably not going to be brilliant investment returns generators. So thinking about companies from a, a fundamental perspective, but also a valuation perspective and what you pay for the potential growth and what you pay for the potential risks is absolutely important. And again, that's why we've always thought that particularly with respect to climate change risks um, and, and, and weather risks, an active management approach is absolutely crucial. So would you say that we have to kind of reevaluate some of our risk models at the moment uh, in terms of weather could change, change everything basically. And what might be a moderate portfolio is more risky because of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the way we think about um, for me, I always take it back to, okay, what are the risks and how do these impact earnings? And are you totally, you know, when we're thinking about the price, do those earnings then make sense? And, I think certainly the traditional ways that we've often thought about earnings risks, you know, in the past, the physical risk of weather, you know, has always been much smaller. But we're seeing the increased frequency and intensity of these weather events, but it's becoming a more relevant and material risk for companies. Similarly, in the past, while renewable technologies have, have been around, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that these now make economic sense. So that shift in the, the structural way we use, produce, distribute energy is starting to happen very, very quickly. And that creates opportunities for some companies and real risks to others. So I don't necessarily think it's a, a, a changing of, of the way we think about companies, but it's more changing the things we look at with respect to how they impact companies. And certainly thinking more about the sustainability of business models, not just from a, a, a kind of earnings perspective, but in terms of, you know, are they... A, employing the right people at the leadership level, at the board level, to, to, to have the knowledge around these risks and be aware of these risks? Are they managing their supply chains 
in a way that they maybe had to differently before because of supply chain disruption due to weather or because of you know the growing focus on the sustainability of supply chains? Are they hiring the right employees to be able to out-innovate and pro provide solutions? So thinking about the sustainability of business models and integrating ESG, not just in terms of what companies do, but how they're doing it and how they're focusing on it. And again, that engagement piece is hugely important to this and encouraging companies to make change. We have a really important role as investors here is something that's really important. So I don't think it's necessarily a case of, of uh, you know, completely changing the wheel, uh, if that makes sense, um, but, but more changing how we view companies as the world around us starts to change. The, the impacts and risks to companies are starting to change because of, of, of climate change and, uh, and changing weather patterns. So we need to change the things we're looking at as investors to make sure we're capturing that. Great, that's really interesting. Thank you very much, Alex. No worries at all, absolute pleasure um, uh, anytime. <laughs>